This is Carolyn Pearson, good friend and follower of Lindsay Hansen Park, who is doing amazing and important work with her year polygamy podcast. I learned to my horror that Lindsay does not even get the requisite 69 cents on the dollar of what her male counterparts in the world of Mormon podcasts get by way of contribution. Do you believe that? I quote now from the Salt Lake Tribune, God bless the Salt Lake Tribune. Women in Utah receive 69 cents for every dollar paid to men. Now, I'm not saying that Lindsay should get as much as men. After all, she is a mere woman. But come on, let's get her up to the 69 cent mark. I'm a subscriber for 10 bucks a month for the last year or so, and I urge you to do the same. Just jump on that donation button and hopefully that subscription button, and let's make a commitment to that great Lindsay whom I love. Okay, thanks. One, two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we seek to try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. If this is your first time tuning in, I would highly, highly recommend going all the way back to episode one and listening to this series in order. It's meant to go in order. If you want to understand what we're talking about today and really get a good grasp on it, it's really important that you have a lot of context. The series is meant to give you context. I understand that it's convenient and easier for a lot of you to jump around from episode to episode since there are so many, but really, if you really want to grasp what we're talking about here, go in order and uh, get some context so this history will be much more fuller, much more richer, and make a lot more sense to you. Today, we're going to be talking about the FLDS. And of course, this is a topic that has been covered ad nauseum in the press lately. Probably over the last decade, it's become quite popular to talk about. In fact, I would say the FLDS is the face of Mormon polygamy. We see, you know, those women in the pastel dresses with the hair bump and uh, pictures of Warren Jeffs. But I want to sort of dissect and untangle the complicated history of this group and sort of the complexities involved in the group. Again, if you've been listening to the series, you know that there are so many different break-off sects and things like that, but we're going to talk about all that. But before we do that, I just want to give a shout out to someone who's been helping me a lot with the tech stuff. As you can see, yearpolygamy.com is up. I've had some wonderful support from someone named Adam and someone named Jake, who have both been fantastic in helping get uh, a lot of this web stuff done. So thank you so much to them. I couldn't have done it without them. I also want to point you to art on the site. The fabulous Leslie Olpin Peterson has been doing an amazing job. She was listening to this podcast. She became inspired uh, while listening to, to the stories of the women that were involved in Nauvoo and involved with Joseph Smith. And she decided to paint. And as she listened to each episode, she would paint the face, how she imagined the face of the women that were married to Joseph Smith. And her art is beautiful. It's powerful. It's incredible. And her prints are for sale. I've linked to it on the site of yearpolygamy.com. Go ahead and check it out and support her fantastic art. Also, uh, this is something that I've talked about recently online, but I realize that many of you will be listening to this hopefully years after I have stopped doing this. 
Um, as a feminist woman, one of the things we all often talk about is gender inequality and the, or the wage gap. And it's so funny because I like to think that that doesn't apply to me, and I like to think that I get feminist theory down completely, and yet it's very, very difficult for me to ask for money. I, as some of you know, I've been putting ads on from some of my friends who supported me in this. In probably the last half, half of the episodes, I hesitate every time to do that. It's really hard for me to ask for money for this series. There are a hundred reasons why I am embarrassed to ask for money, why I don't think I deserve the money. And as I was contemplating this with a good feminist uh, mentor of mine, she was saying this is exactly why women have the pay gap. Uh, not to victim blame at all, but uh, when I don't feel like I deserve it, when I don't ask for it, um, I can't expect you know people just to to gift it to me. So consider this me um, being a strong feminist woman, encouraging you out there to do the same in your own lives, to negotiate for a fair wage, to get paid for the work that you do. I am asking for you to become a subscriber if possible. So please subscribe to yearpolygamy.com. We have an option that's as low as $2.50 a month. And so this helps, uh, helps me and my family because I spend so much time on books and energy and reading. And really, to be perfectly honest, the fundamentalist research in the last six months has changed my life in some interesting ways. Uh, mostly it has been such a heavy pill to swallow and it's been sort of a dark six months for me as far as this research goes. It's exhausting. I've, um, had to encounter a lot of unusual experiences because of this, and I imagine that's not over yet. So I'm asking you to uh, become a subscriber to help support that work. Uh, getting donations definitely helps the burnout, so I don't burn out. So that's my little plug. Uh, it's hard for me. Um, as a Mormon woman, I'm taught to be humble. I'm taught to uh, give service. So it's really difficult for me to ask for money, and I'm embarrassed doing so. And yet feminism would say I don't need to apologize. So so let's get that out of the way. And again, I just appreciate the support of those who are subscribers. I don't want to downplay you at all. Thank you so much for those who have supported me, who have sent me messages, who have cheered me on. And honestly, if you can't donate, I get it. That's that's totally fine. I would hate for someone to um, give money that they desperately need for their family. So go ask if you can't donate, go ask for what you deserve in your own lives. So let's talk about the FLDS. Now, this is going to be a two-parter because there is so much information to go over. Like, it's incredible. It's overwhelming. I've actually put this off for so long because there's so much information to wade through. So this is going to be a two-part episode. Then we're going to have Nadine Hansen. She has deposed Warren Jeffs. She's an attorney and uh does a lot of work for uh, the victims of this community. So we're going to have her on. And um, I have a survivor who has left the group that is considering coming on. And so we'll, we'll see how that shakes out. But uh, this is going to be a two-part series just kind of going into the history. So here is basically episode one. Really, for an outsider, you could argue that there are two types of Mormonism. There is LDS Mormonism, and there's Fundamentalist Mormonism. 
And of course, if you're listening to the series, you know it's way more complicated than that. There are tons of, you know, little groups and big groups and all different kinds of beliefs. And, and I consider the LDS to be one of these. We are all on this sort of spectrum of belief. And in some ways, the LDS church is more orthodox and strict and hypervigilant in some areas than other groups are, like the Word of Wisdom. And in other areas, other groups are more hypervigilant. So it's really interesting to see. But let's talk about why the outside world sees it this way. As a brief overview, the FLDS Church, it's estimated to have 6,000 to around 15,000 members residing in the sister cities of Hilldale, Utah, and Colorado City, Arizona. Those are the most famous. Colorado City is something probably anyone that's ever interested in Mormon fundamentalist knows about. They also have groups in El Dorado, Texas, which have made the press lately, but here are some communities that you might not be aware of. Uh, there are groups in Westcliff, Colorado, Mancos, Colorado, Creston and Bountiful, British Columbia, Pringle, South Dakota, Benjamin Hill, Sonora, Ensenada, Baja, California, and Boise City, Oklahoma. And of course, those are the ones we know about. This group is notoriously secretive, so these numbers are difficult to ascertain, and the communities are also hard to flesh out. Their headquarters were originally located in what was known as Short Creek, Arizona, at, which is, you know, right at the border of Arizona and Utah. And this is where we get, you'll, I think Kristen Decker even uses this term, the Cricker group, the Cricks, because <laughs> this is a very Utah accent thing. When we say Creek, we call it Crick. So the Cricker group. We do know that uh, the headquarters over there, but since the settlement of Short Creek has expanded to the twin municipalities of Hilldale, Utah, and Colorado City, that is where the headquarters were for a long time. However, there's a lot of um, changing evidence to believe that the headquarters are now in El Dorado, Texas, where the temple has been built by the FLDS church members. And of course, as we get into part two, you'll see more how this develops. So let's talk about the development of the FLDS church. It wasn't always so named the FLDS. And of course, you can trace like almost all of the fundamentalist groups, the roots back to this sort of fundamentalist royalty, a handful of families who believed it was not only their duty, but that God had prepared the way for them to keep the principle of plural marriage alive since the LDS church had abandoned it uh, in 1890 and started to distance itself from it afterwards. So these royalty families, these fundamentalist royalty families, organized the famous priesthood council. And this was originally meant to be the sort of egalitarian group where it was a committee and everybody decided on everything together. But if anyone knows anything about Mormon authority, it gets messy. And there's repeated histories of Mormon authority sort of going through this, especially in church history. And we see these methods being reformed and changed. This sort of council of friends is no different. Uh, they went through the same thing. They, you know, they first organized to focus on polygamy, keeping this principle alive. And of course that is still a huge focus of these groups, but the focus began to shift to enforcing loyalty. And I'm going to posit that this is because of the increasing pressure and discrimination that, uh, you know, practicing polygamists felt from their LDS neighbors and fear from the U.S. government because they had raids like the Short Creek Raid and, and other smaller raids that sort of 
while polygamy was the reason and a huge component in that, it sort of made them crack down, um, turn inside, and really work on loyalty. Who was, who was with them and who was against them. And this becomes a theme that's going to, you know, develop into what we call the one-man rule, which I'll talk about in just a minute. But just as an overview again, and we've talked about this before, in 1927, J. Leslie Broadbent uh, was publishing the pamphlet called The Celestial Marriage, which advocated for the practice of plural marriage. Now, we know in the 1920s, the LDS Church is still figuring out, like, what do we do with plural marriage? We don't, you know, we still have a lot of our apostles living plurally, you know, and they're marrying people. It's very messy and complicated. Up until the 1920s, the LDS Church still has its branches entangled in this polygamous mess, if you will. So J. Leslie Broadbent is publishing this, and um, of course he becomes excommunicated from the LDS Church in 1929. He becomes ordained an apostle in the Mormon fundamentalist organization known as the Council of Friends by Lauren C. Woolley. And of course, anyone that knows about Lauren C. Woolley, Lauren C. Woolley is the son of John W. Woolley, who claims to have his authority from John Taylor. Again, go back and listen to all the episodes, then you can know what I'm talking about. On March 6, 1929, Broadbent is given the title of second elder by Lawrence C. Woolley. When Lawrence C. Woolley dies in 1934, Broadbent becomes the new priesthood president. This was considered pretty uncontroversial, and Broadbent would do a lot for this work. He would travel a lot and uh, really advocate for the fundamentalist movement. In 1935, he, along with other fundamentalist leaders, visit Millville, Utah. During that next month, Broadbent would die from pneumonia. So about the same time in the 1930s, two families, the Jessups and the Barlows, settled the area around Hilldale, Utah, along the border with Arizona, where they founded the FLDS. And it's said there's an issue or an article from Time Magazine that I will link to that the families, the Jessups and the Barlows that move here, carry a gene with them for a disease that they're going to pass along. It's a genetic disorder that they're going to pass along through the intermarrying. And we'll talk about that later on. But anyway, Broadbent dies, and two men try to make a claim to be the new leader. Uh, Charles Eldon Kingston, who is the son of Charles W. Kingston, claims that Broadbent designated him as the second elder. And so the Kingstons eventually go on to establish their Davis County Co-op, which we talked about in also another episode, and they sort of distance themselves from all fundamentalist groups and kind of go their separate ways. Meanwhile, John Y. Barlow, who was next in line in the sort of seniority um, for the Council of Friends, he asserts his position as a senior member. And there are some that claim that Broadbent had designated him as a second elder. So this causes some problems. Some polygamists followed Barlow's leadership, believing him to be the presiding priesthood leader on earth. And it's something that Barlow took very seriously and he accepted. After Barlow dies, Joseph Musser would become the senior member of the council. Musser suffers from a bunch of strokes and is in poor health. And in 1952, he announces to the other council members his intention to appoint Rulan Allred to the council. This becomes controversial. Other members of the council cannot accept this ordination, and they claim that they had taken a covenant 
with John Y. Barlow before he dies to never allow Rulon Allred into the council. Musser doesn't care. He goes ahead with ordination anyway, and this causes a rift. Musser is rebelled against by a lot of the council members that claim they take this covenant, and he releases them and appoints a whole new council. So this t- forms the first like major faction. Of course, there are always going to be factions in these groups. And if the LDS Church thinks that like they're the ones that got their act together, remember the FLDS Church has been having breakoffs since Kirtland. So it's not like this is a unique thing to Mormon fundamentalism. So after this break in the Priesthood Council, there are two groups, one that follows Musser and one that follows Charles Zitting, who was the next senior uh, member of the original Priesthood Council. Musser would die in 1954, and Rulon Allred becomes the new leader of this group. And of course, this becomes the AUB. We talk about this. We have a great timeline in the AUB episode. So that becomes the AUB group. In the other group, there's a man named Leroy Johnson who takes over leadership after Charles Zitting dies in 1954. Now, Leroy Johnson does not have an easy transition. There's said to be a lot of struggles with uh, sons of former leader John John Y. Barlow. They called them the Barlow Boys. And some have referred to their efforts as the Barlow Conspiracy. So... You will, you might hear a controversy about that, and it has to do with their influence over the people. So there are always a sort of fight for power and this controversy of the infallibility of prophets. Now, um, it's, it's really important to talk about how these groups differ. Leroy Johnson sort of becomes obsessed with this idea of one man authority, and that's what we're going to call the one man rule. Uh, we're going to call him Uncle Roy, since that's primarily how he is known amongst his insiders. So in the 1980s, Leroy Johnson is a senior member of the Priesthood Council. Now remember, still at this point, this is not like sort of a prophet. It's not how Warren Jeffs is going to be taking over this group. This is more a council. It's supposed to be democratic. But it's with Uncle Roy that he starts to develop some really strict prescriptions for the Priesthood Council members. This would cause a lot of dissension amongst the ranks. So he starts having all these rules for people to follow, and men in the council of friends don't want to follow these rules. But Uncle Roy does something that we hear in LDS Mormonism, where he says the priesthood is not a democracy. We hear that, you know, when we talk about the the idea of agitating for change or, uh, you know, the the fight for women's ordination. So this is the same sort of thing that happens with Uncle Roy. He says the priesthood is not a democracy. He claims that he doesn't need all the votes of the priesthood council because he holds all the keys of the priesthood. Now, some of the men in the priesthood council disagree with disagrees with him. Marion Hammond is one of the men. He was the number two in the council, and he challenges the idea, saying that each of the members hold different keys. And I've actually heard this within LDS Mormonism too, that all of the 12 apostles each hold different keys and the prophet uh, holds them all. And then when he dies, they all restore their keys. Well, what Marion Hammond is claiming is that there's not just one ruler that has them all, that they each bring different keys to the table. So Marion Hammond and Alma Timson take about a third of the families 
with them. And they form what is known now as the second ward. So that the church that we know now know as the FLDS becomes the first ward. And the second ward goes with Hammond and Timson, and they sort of form what is known as Centennial Park, and we'll be talking about them later on. The rest of the families say, stay loyal to Uncle Roy. With this sort of new power, Uncle Roy starts declaring new doctrines. He is said to have said, quote, There is only one man at a time, and that is the way it has been throughout all of history of God's dealing with people, both in this world and in the world before this one and the world before that one. Only one man at a time holds the keys and powers of the sealing power, and those who act during his administration are only acting under a delegated authority, end quote. So this becomes the precedence that would separate the first word from the second word. This is, becomes known as the one-man rule, and is sort of this way to declare, separate the wheat from the chaff as far as authority goes. It's, it's a very Mormon story sort of recreating itself. We will see other leaders like Rulon Jeffs, who follows Uncle Roy, and then Warren Jeffs, really take hold of this one-man rule doctrine. In fact, Rulon Jeffs would eliminate the successors of leaders, and sort of this, this council would really shift and change. In the FLDS magazine Truth, here's how they showed their line of authority. They've got Joseph Smith, then Brigham Young, John Taylor, Wilford Woodruff, John Woolley, Lauren Woolley, Leslie Broadbent, Joseph Musser, and Charles Zitting. But Warren Jeffs changed that history, and it's said that on the Yearning for Zion ranch walls, which we're going to talk about what the YFZ ranch is, and on the FLDS website, you, you won't see any pictures of these men, uh, Wilford Woodruff, Broadbent, Musser, or Zitting. They're sort of eliminated and whitewashed from FLDS history. That is said because they don't really line up with the one-man rule doctrine. It's said that all of these people, yes, including Wilford Woodruff, sort of go with this council idea. It's also said that uh, after Leroy Johnson's death, um, that Rulon Jeffs and Warren Jeffs have sort of sanitized his sermons, uh, Johnson's sermons, and they remove any references to Joseph Musser as him being the one. Warren Jeffs uh, would teach his children this history, FLDS children this history. Quote, about 15 to 17 years ago, there were several apostles who turned traitor against President Johnson. Many apostles have fallen away, not believing. There is one man who holds all the powers of the priesthood and is the key holder. And that one man today is President Jeffs. He is our Enoch, our Moses, our Elijah. The work of all the prophets is now alive in President Jeffs. A few years ago, Marion Hammond, Guy Musser, Alma Timpson, men who were ordained apostles, turned traitor against Uncle Roy. They wanted to be the great power over the earth, and they wanted Uncle Roy to die, but President Jeffs was there to help him. End quote. And of course, he was talking about his father, Jeffs. So um, we're going to talk about how uh, Rulon and Warren sort of take over, but they really get on board for this one-man rule. And again, this is going to really set the precedence for this line of authority that everything flows through the prophet. It's important to know this distinction versus Centennial Park. You're going to see the different ways these groups 
you know, run their organizations and sort of the fruits of how this style of leadership takes shape. One researcher has suggested that the concept of the FLDS being separate than a church entity did not fully establish itself. So it's important to remember that even the LDS church has this, there's business arms and then there's the actual religion. And um, it's said that this didn't happen for the FLDS until a 1987 lawsuit when we see the first name of the FLDS being used. According to this interpretation, the original authority conferred by Lawrence C. Woolley was only for the purpose of initiating plural marriages, not for establishing a new church. And many early Short Creek polygamists continued to regard the LDS church as authoritative, but out of order on the matter of polygamy. So they sort of hoped that the LDS church would come back into order and reestablish the practice of polygamy. And of course, this is something that many other fundamentalist groups, you know, believed. Uh, Kristen Decker talks about this in the AUB, that they used to pray to the temple. They'd face the temple and say a prayer that the temple doors would be open because they still believed that there was some authority in the LDS church. They just believed they were out of order course, this changes when the LDS church decides to lift the temple ban and ordain black men to the priesthood. This makes most of the fundamentalists say, okay, this church is full on into apostasy. Now, something else that this group had would be the UEP, the United Effort Plan. And the Barlows um, had sort of changed this when they had taken over. They added a series of amendments to this and um, turned it into a trust. And this was sort of the the group that they were running on as an entity rather than as a church, the UEP. But by 2004, Warren had, you know, excommunicated a lot of these influential men and claimed that they had criticized authority. So this sort of changes. So Leroy Johnson is recognized as a prophet as he starts to implement this one-man rule. And... Rulon Jess was the only other high priest apostle that was left in the group. Johnson never ordained any others. And when he died, Rulon Jess would become the prophet because he was the only remaining apostle. So we have Rulon Jess. Um, and as, as he becomes prophet, he does some interesting things. One of the things he does is he prophesies that he will live until Jesus Christ comes again. Now, this is not unique to Mormon fundamentalism. This uh, happens in the Kingston group. This happens in the LeBaron group. Uh, it's even said that Rulon Allred said similar things. So a lot of these people really believed that these men were not going to die and that the end was nigh. And this is an important ingredient to have in the recipe of sort of an end of days fundamentalist religion. Some would call it a cult because it really keeps this element of fear as a way to initiate control over the group. The problem with Rulon Jeffs making this prophecy is it doesn't really leave the group with a clear successor when he does die. And so we're going to see this come into some problems. We do know that around 1990, Rulon Jeffs finally organizes the group into the formal church name, the FLDS. He has two counselors or assistants, Parley Harker and Fred Jessup. Let's talk a little bit about Rulon Timson Jeffs. So Rulon Jeffs was born in Salt Lake City on December 6, 1909, 
and he is the son of first-generation fundamentalist David William Ward Jeffs and one of his plural wives, Nettie Lenora Timpson. His father had lived this polygamous lifestyle in secret, and Rulon would spend the first few years of his life under the pseudonym Rulon Jennings. Uh, Rulon was raised in the mainstream LDS church, and he wasn't really introduced into the fundamentalist teachings until 1938, when it was his father's birthday dinner, and he presents his son, Rulon, with a copy of Joseph W. Musser's Truth magazine. Rulon fully embraces the message, and in 1940, he secretly takes a plural wife, for which his first wife, Zola, who happened to be the daughter of LDS Apostle Hubie Brown and great-granddaughter of Brigham Young, divorced him after this had happened. In the spring of 1945, Rulon Jeffs had been working in northern Idaho, and he returns to Salt Lake City, and he becomes ordained an apostle by John Y. Barlow. He was sort of this protege, they say, of John Y. Barlow, and again later becomes a priesthood senior member with Leroy Johnson. And people often compare their relationship of that of Brigham Young and Heber C. Kimball. So, Jeffs is sort of primed to take over this, and his followers would call him Uncle Rulon. It's reported that at the time of Uncle Rulon's death, he was age 92, and he was said to have as many as 75 wives and 65 children. I've actually heard it that there were more wives than that. And uh, I believe in the book The Witness Wore Red, you can hear about what it was like for a young 19-year-old girl to get married to Uncle Rulon. I think he was 80 at the time. As Rulon Jeffs becomes elderly, he would have a stroke. And this is where his son Warren steps in to become his father's spokesperson and has controlled access to him. Now, again, Uncle Rulon has declared that he's never going to die. So when he has a stroke, it's not really worrisome to the following. And Warren Jeffs, his son, is very protective of the information that comes out. They're very worried about him being seen as fallible. And I think we still have remnants of this in the LDS Church. You know, if you talk to anyone about Spencer W. Kimball's last days, he was said to have been protected. Even his family had restricted access to him in some cases. This is just this idea that a prophet needs to be fallible, that they can't age, that they can't get old. And in Rulon's case, he can't die. In the year 2000, Harley Harker, one of the assistants or the apostles to Rulon, dies. So Warren becomes the first counselor to his own father in the presidency. Prior to this point, Warren used to teach the people that if the prophet died, the counselors would be dissolved and no one would hold any leadership in the hierarchy. But of course, after he becomes the counselor, it's said that he stops teaching this idea. Now, you should know that Warren had had control in the group. He was moving up the ranks for a long time. One of the things I'm going to talk about really quick is the Alta Academy. Now, the Alta Academy is sort of famous for something that Warren Jeffs was involved in. It was the FLDS school. And Warren Jeffs was very much involved with the Alta Academy for a long, long time. An entire generation of FLDS kids would go through the the Alta Academy. And Warren Jeffs, even though he had only had a high school education, became the principal in 1976. And he would serve the, as the principal of the school for over 22 years. 
The school was located at the mouth of Little Cottonwood Canyon, and this was near uh, Rulon Jeffs' compound at the time. This place could be seen from the road above if you were skiing in the mountain by anyone that drove on their way up to Alta or Snowbirds, the ski resorts. It said it was a 30,000 square foot academy building. It had 44 bedrooms, 20 bathrooms, two full kitchens, two half kitchens, and two laundries, all wired with a PA system. Some of the critics of the FLDS church will say that this is really where Warren got his taste for power, where he rises in the ranks. Now, again, remember, Warren is shaping the minds of an entire generation of FLDS kids. He's very much connected connected to the leadership. So these people are going to be trained and indoctrinated in looking to him as authority. A lot of the kids that have left the group will say that their experience in the Alta Academy was a terrible one, including Rebecca Musser, who grew up in fear. She was the woman I talked about that, wore, that wrote the book, The Witness Wore Red, who actually had to marry Uncle Rulon. She talks in her book about Warren Jeffs being the principal, and there are some pretty terrible stories there. The school had an official motto, which was, Perfect obedience produces perfect faith. And it was a pretty, at first, it started off as a pretty standard school. I think, you know, Warren was just implementing the sort of education that he had. They taught history, which, of course, we're going to see is not actual history, accounting, geography, computer science, chemistry, chorus classes, and math classes. Um, the days would begin with, you know, an opening hymn and prayer and some sort of sermon and they would have like a group devotional that would be like a school assembly um, that would include all the kids from grades 4 to 12. And the lower grades would listen to this in their PA systems. There's this great, great blog where I found some of this insider info with some quotes. Uh, and I will link to it. It's called FLDS Beliefs 101. Um, and it's a blog spot. But uh, this author of that site has gathered some men memories of the Alta Academy. And so here's where they come from. Here's a, here's a quote from a former student. Quote, I am an Alta Academy graduate. I rather enjoyed going to school there. It was the only school I ever knew, so it's hard to compare it to other schools. I didn't like the strictness of the school. We cannot wear hats on school property. We cannot wear shirts with anything written on them. We cannot wear collarless shirts or pullovers. We cannot throw snowballs, and if we did, we could be expelled for it. We are not supposed to talk to girls. We could not wear red clothing or neon-colored shoelaces. In junior high, the boys and girls had separate classrooms, and they had their P.E. at different times of the day. Footballs were not allowed on school property. In junior high and high school, the boys and girls could not play any sports together. The boys would play one sport and the girls another. Warren confiscated my football in seventh grade and told me that it is a sport that only causes contention. My third grade teacher would always pull me out of the classroom by my ears every time she heard me talking when I wasn't supposed to be. She also tried to slap her hands with rulers whenever we tapped our fingers on our desk. Of course, we did everything we could to upset her. So to many of us boys, it was just a game to see what we could get away with. Warren did ask me personal questions like what I did after school and if I ever listened to the radio or watched TV or movies. But that was as personal as, it, as he ever got to me. Overall, I rather liked going to school there, despite the fact that it was so strict. They did have a very good curriculum, and we were given lots of homework. The thing I hated the most were the destruction sermons. 
we were given every few months or so. They scared the hell out of me and many, many of the other students. We could go into the great detail describing how they would happen and what would happen. I also hated the boy-girl sermons he would give. They made you never, ever want to look or even talk to a girl until you were married. So girlfriends were definitely out of the question, end quote. And so we kind of see where Warren's focuses are lying. So now I'm going to play a clip that Warren Jeffs gave. He recorded this in one of his home economics classes at the Alta Academy. So remember, this would have gone, this would have been instruction for young girls about age 5th to 10th grade. Dear ladies, draw close to your good mothers. Before you get married, love every mother so you'll know how to love every sister wife. Love every brother and sister and treat them kindly. So you'll know how to treat kindly every mother's child when you get married. You have such a great opportunity right in your father's home. And through him, the recommend, his recommend to the prophet will bring you this gift. Doesn't it feel right? Don't these words of the prophets feel right? You know they and isn't the opposite always accompanied with sneaking around, keeping secrets, whispering here and there, secret phone calls, always a fear it just doesn't feel right. The wrong things that would lead to your destruction. You were created for the purpose of being exalted. Read chapter 3, The Purpose of Celestial and Plural Marriage. And also, page 33 to 37, the last part of chapter 4. We started chapter 4 last time. I'm now going to ask Uncle Wendell to speak to you. This is wonderful teaching that <clears throat> Uncle Warren has given to us. He really knows and understands just what to say. And you young girls are getting some very valuable teachings. I would just briefly comment that priesthood is everything. And the Holy Spirit of God is the power of the priesthood. That's how we achieve eternal life being filled with the Holy Spirit of God as we live in the realms of the priesthood. Anything less than that is not eternal life and will come to an end. So, you dear young girls, remember when you get married, your husband holds all the keys to your blessings. The prophet holds all the keys to your husband's blessing. So if your husband holds all of the keys to your blessings, totally give yourself to him and let him guide you in righteousness. As we go through married life, the years go by, we learn a lot of lessons. 
I mean, the thing I just want to leave with you today is give yourself to your husband like you promise and covenant to do and let him lead you in righteousness. And remember that your great work when you become married is to be one with your husband. And when you are judged, the first thing they will ask you is where are you one with your husband? And remember, your husband can hire someone to do the dishes if he had to. He could hire someone to clean the house. He could hire someone to do the cooking. And he can hire someone to clean the yard. But he cannot hire anybody to be one with him. So you can see, this is your important call. Don't make the priority in your life just to keep the house clean or just to cook a good meal. Although these are important in your husband's kingdom, your priority is to make sure that you learn how and become one with him. Then everything else will fall into place. If you'll be one with him, he will tell you how he wants the house clean, how he wants you to cook, how he wants you to dress. And all you'll have to do is obey The husband is not without the woman, nor the woman without the husband, in our Heavenly Father's word. And being in this principle for many years, I, along with Mr. Jeffs, can testify that celestial marriage is perhaps the greatest thing next to priesthood and the prophet in our very lives. I wouldn't want to live for five minutes in monogamy. There's nothing as sweet and as joyful and happy as striving in celestial marriage. If you don't strive and labor in it, if you do wrong in celestial marriage, it becomes very difficult and hard to endure. But if you do right, there is nothing in the world that can touch the joys in celestial marriage. If you'll think about these things, you'll find that there are few joys to a woman few joys in her life, in her married life, as there are in getting along and loving a sister wife. If you see it properly, you will give yourself to love and serve your sister wives, being one with your husband and loving and serving your sister wives. When you understand it, it will be the greatest thing to you in your life. It won't be a fight and a burden, and a labor, and a jealous condition. It'll bring you more joy than you ever realized. And this is what awaits you, like Brother Jeff's Uncle Warren has told you. But you must give yourself to it. Give yourself to it in righteousness, and strive with all of your heart to be filled with Heavenly Father's Spirit. And you will experience those joys that they say are unspeakable joys. They are so great, they're unspeakable, because they cannot be described. And this is what waits for you. And we have a prophet today 
to administer all of these things to us. The people have not always had that. But today, we have a prophet to administer the laws and ordinances of happiness and joy to us. That will never be taken away if we do what's right. May the Lord help us to do these things. And you young sisters, listen carefully to what Mr. Jess tells you. He's teaching you the way that you should go. So every day, listen carefully to what he tells you and put it into your life. You are being taught very, very well. May God bless all of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. It said that lots of people didn't like these sort of destruction lectures. And what these were, were lectures that Warren would give every few months, where he would promise death and destruction if anyone, um, you know, stepped outside and broke the rules or became a Gentile. And it said that it even gave the children nightmares. He would... Uh, prophesy, if you will, about the blood and gore and all the people that would die in the Salt Lake Valley and go into these gory, gross details about what would happen, you know, to the wicked. One person said, quote, several times he would tell the children that this will be our last school year because the destructions were going to happen, end quote. What's interesting is Warren Jeffs would, would begin taping some of his classes for students that missed the lecture. So we still have those collections. He actually sold copies to members um, and they would listen to him for hours. And his history classes were actually histories of the priesthood. And sometimes he would incorporate biblical teachings. Um, it's said that some of the people that leave the FLDS church were taught that, you know, Warren Jeffs w- was the president of the United States. Uh, one person didn't even know that there were other countries. They thought the United States was the only country in the entire world. Here is what another person had to say, quote, Warren taught math history and church history and led devotionals every morning. Some of our lessons were slightly modified versions of the truth. We were taught that man had never landed on the moon. It was all stage show similar to the movie Capricorn One. Why teach us a strange fiction? Another student, end quote. They taught that men would never be on the moon. Uh, there's this great anecdote of someone who had left the FLDS church going outside to Salt Lake City and hearing about an astronaut for the first time and thinking it was wicked because Warren told them that the Lord would never allow a man on the moon and it just wouldn't happen. They also like covered the anatomy parts of the books. Um, so they would just cut little pieces of paper and stick it over the genitals, um, to make it more modest. One, uh, on this blog spot that I was talking about, there's this quote from a former member. After listening to his tapes that were released on the internet, Warren Jeffs had released some tapes on the internet. This is what a former member said, quote, listening to his voice brings back so many members that I would like to forget. Now recognizing him for what he is, his voice literally makes me nauseous. Nauseous. For me, it's a mental trigger that brings back all the crap we had to believe in or be damned to hell, the risk of our souls being destroyed because of our unfaithfulness. 
The weight of unbearable guilt that his teachings put upon us made us all walk around as sinners, so we were continually condemning ourselves and beating ourselves up for our failures, for our humanity. We had to constantly hurry up and be perfect before the end of the world so that we were not destroyed along with the wicked and the rest of the world while our families and our loved ones were saved. When I hear his voice now, it reeks of evil to me. I don't know if it was because he is or that in my mind I feel so betrayed. I truly believe with all my heart. I wanted to believe, end quote. And here's something that a lot of LDS women can appreciate. Warren Jeffs even taught home economics classes to girls. And this is where we see sort of this descent into more modesty, more strict dress. Now, of course, uh, the FLDS were not only isolated from the outside world, from popular culture as much as they possibly could be, but they were also encouraging women to stay modest, to wear dresses, to do that sort of thing. Jeff takes it one step further. He, he teaches girls that a true woman, a proper woman, um, should dress like she's on the wagon train heading west because this constantly makes her ready for marriage. He told her to learn, you know, taught girls to learn how to keep a house, how to behead chickens and cook it up for their husbands. And uh, he would make some prescriptions like certain colors were bad and then certain colors were good. And, And of course, Rebecca Musser talks about this in The Witness Wore Red. But I encourage everybody to read Rebecca Musser's book, The Witness Wore Red, and I'm going to link to that. But here's a clip she did on an exclusive interview with KIVI-TV in 2013. And again, she's done a whole Dateline documentary, which I'll also link to, where she talks about this in more detail. But here she is talking about her experiences with Warren Jeffs. The last time that I saw Warren Jeffs, before I left FLDS, he pointed his finger at me and he said, I will break you and I will train you to be a good wife. And then I escaped. I think one of the most telling moments for me was my son was in second grade. They were learning about the civil rights movement. And he was asking me some things. And I would often say, well, Kyle, I didn't go to a real school, so let's look this up. And, and finally he said, tell me what it was like. And as I described my childhood and a normal day to, to him, his eyes got bigger and bigger. And he said, Mom, you were a slave. And that was really hard for me to hear. But it was from his mouth. And if we're talking behavior, that's the reality of it. Jeff's also held these personal interviews with children. They were like bishops' interviews. Um, they were something a lot of the kids feared and have bad memories of. It said that they had to climb these long stairs up to Jeff's office and sometimes had to be counseled like twice a week. Jeffs would keep tabs on his favorite students and some of the more troubled students. And Rebecca Musser talks a lot about these interviews and how menacing Jeffs could be. Interestingly enough, not surprising enough, knowing Warren Jeffs, many of his future wives were some of his former students. He would become very, you know, um, involved in some of their lives. And um, he would detail that, like he would interrogate them as if he was having a very personal bishop's interview. If the little kids were out on the playground holding hands, there's a story of a little girl holding the hand of her cousin who was a boy in first grade. She was called into his office. She was told that that was naughty and wrong and that she should treat boys as if they were reptiles, poisonous reptiles, or snakes. 
he had some really harsh punishments. Uh, if you had like an untucked shirt tail or bad handwriting or bad grades, um, you would be punished for it. Girls and boys were whipped. Even for minor infractions, it said that sometimes they were whipped so hard they couldn't even sit down. It said one time that like if he didn't beat them, he'd humiliate them. And there's a story of him hauling in a little second grader in front of the class, grabs him by his ankle, shakes him upside down and says, look, I'm shaking the evil out of him. Um, one of their mantras that they would say in the mornings were keep sweet perfect obedience brings perfect faith some of the rules that he was said to have enacted was they couldn't wear stripes they couldn't wear red some days they weren't allowed to eat girls were never supposed to talk to boys and if you looked or smiled at one you were a harlot or a jezebel there are more sinister accusations as well. Brent Jeffs, who is one of Warren Jeffs's nephews, alleges that when he was only five or six years old, that Warren Jeffs and two other uncles would repeatedly sexually abuse him in the bathroom at school. Brent Jeffs was also backed by his father's. His story was backed up by his father, who had to go against one of his own brothers, who was one of the men alleged. Now, there's this famous picture of Warren Jeffs doing a skit. At the Alta Academy, I think he's wearing like a funny hat and playing a violin. It's actually not just a picture, but there's a video of him. It's a very rare video of him trying to be silly. He would put on these skits with the children and he, he would, uh, try to joke with the kids. It's, it's very awkward and strange to watch and I will link to that. Uh, the children were never allowed to say the Pledge of Allegiance because they were said to have answer to a higher power. And they didn't want to claim allegiance to anything but to God. As Rulon, Uncle Rulon, gets sicker and Jeffs is gaining more power, he starts to make more and more changes in the school. He decides to physically separate the two sexes into two different classrooms. And then in two different buildings on the compound, he changes the curriculum. So girls are having a completely different curriculum than the boys um, recesses were different. They were no longer allowed to have any contact with each other. Coursework was rewritten. Anything that was uh, written by an outside author was considered terrible. He started destroying everything except for church-approved books. This becomes one of Warren Jeffs's what would be a long reign of destroying education and really um, sort of limiting the the knowledge and information people would have. And of course, this generation that's growing up, more and more kids are becoming more and more isolated and they're learning more incorrect things about the world. Warren just even warned these kids if they snuck these books or had some of them at home that they would uh, take the evil spirits of their authors into their homes and into their bodies. Now, the Alta Academy would close in 1998 and would be sold. Warren Jeffs would move to Colorado City where he would really take power. But it was in the year 2000 that Warren Jeffs really does the most damage, in my opinion. He uh, he told all the FLDS faithful to remove their kids from public schools in Hilldale and Colorado City. So it's said that overnight, two-thirds of the students disappear from Colorado from the Colorado City Unified School District. At Phelps Elementary School in Hilldale, the enrollment got so low that Washington County School District was forced to close it. All these people just pulled their kids out of public school. 
they of course become indoctrinated in FLDS teachings and we'll see Warren Jeffs tries to limit the information more and more and more. So Warren moves back to Colorado City. Uncle Rulon, of course, is now sick with a stroke, and Warren really sees an opportunity here. He starts implementing changes right away. If anyone questions him, he does not give them access to his father. And, of course, Warren already is seen as a respected and trusted authority in the community because of his work in the Alta Academy and because of his connection to his father. He starts demanding that people recognize his leadership, and if anyone starts to question it, he evicts them or excommunicates them. He claims that Uncle Rulon is supporting him in all these actions and putting a rubber stamp on any decision he makes, including the alienation of some former leaders or people that question him. Now, this is right towards the uh, year 2000, and this would be the millennium, holds a very special significance for FLDS members. Now, remember Uncle, Uncle Leroy, Leroy S. Johnson, has all these prophecies that say that the millennium would be the turn of the century, and the millennium, 2000, is the ushering of the second coming. In 1984, he was said to have prophesied, quote, The redemption of Zion, according to our reckoning and according to the revelations of God, is to commence in the seventh period of time. According to our reckoning, the seventh period of time is only about 16 years off the year 2000, end quote. FLDS people would know that within 16 years, give or take, of the year 2000, the end of the world was coming. Uncle Leroy would also say, we only have until the year 2000 to do this work. And the prophet Joseph, the one mighty and strong, will take over and carry this gospel to the world, end quote. It's said that on three different occasions before Uncle Rulon would pass away, he would call a select 2,500 from his 10,000 members and instruct them to buy food and clothes be prepared and to lift up. So these 2,500 out of the 10,000 were considered lucky to have this extra special warning to do this preparation. And they actually had a plot of land that had been set aside to uh, designate the exact place of the gathering where um, this would happen, where these 2,500 people would be lifted up into heaven and saved. Before and after the lifting up, the faithful would need food and clothes, and so they purchase food in this sort of loyal anticipation. But the day, day before this gathering was supposed to happen, Rulon calls it off with the excuse that uh, the Lord was giving them more time to be with their families. On the last of the three occasions, uh, Uncle Rulon gives them a, a date set, and this was said to be on June 12th, 1999, he said that they were to meet in the meeting house at 6 a.m. So all these people show up, they have an opening song and a prayer, and then a leader addresses them, and they form a prayer circle, and they held their hands up as a prayer was being said, and they form a procession, and they make their way to Cottonwood Park, which was about two blocks away, and they engage in a long, a day-long celebration. And during the day, people went to the store to buy you know, groceries to take with them wherever they were going. But before the day ended, word came down from Uncle Rulon that they lacked faith, and so they were not going to be taken up. They, again, were given another date of when this lifting up would happen, and um, this gave them more time to repent. 
So that was in 1999. As 2000 approaches, so as the year 2000 approaches, Uncle Rulon is getting more and more sick. Warren is taking more and more control. Um, they are not worrying about any sort of leadership, passing on the leadership, because, of course, Rulon is supposed to live forever. And Warren is the first counselor in the FLDS First Presidency, and there's really no need to replace anyone else. There's no more apostles being called because Rulon is going to live forever. There's a one-man rule, and uh, there's loyalty to him and to him only, and he's never going to die. Of course, in 2002, he does pass on. Now, Winston Blackmore, who was Uncle Rulon's trusted leader, um, one of his trusted bishops, explains, quote, Shortly after Uncle Rulon had his stroke, I had on a weekly basis the happy experience of traveling to Salt Lake City, on one occasion, Warren and I were seated with Uncle Rulon. Warren asked me if I wanted to hear the vision which Father had seen in the night. I said, sure. He then pulled out a small notepad which he had been using to write down everything that his father had said and commenced reading. He stated that about 2.30 that morning, his father stirred and woke him up. He supposedly told Warren that he had beheld a large and beautiful valley which was literally filled with young women and children, and that he understood that this great posterity was his own. He understood that this event was 300-plus years into the future, and he beheld that he was renewed without tasting death. After Warren read this vision, Uncle Rulon whispered, Did I say that? I don't remember a thing of it. Very soon, Wendell Nielsen came, and Warren asked him if he wanted to hear the story. Warren read it to him. Uncle Rulon asked again, Did I say that? I don't remember a thing of it. Leroy Jeffs came in and Warren asked him if he wanted to hear the vision that Father had had in the night. After hearing it again, Uncle Rulon again stated, Did I say that? I don't remember a thing of it. The following week, when I went down, Uncle Rulon had Warren read the vision a couple of times and made his same remark that he did not remember it. Very soon, it was all that he wanted to talk about. We heard it in church. We heard it in private. There soon became a great fever in supplying Uncle Rulon some of these young women that would live the 320 years into the millennium with him. He privately confided to me that these women are being thrust upon me by their fathers. End quote. So, Warren is sort of taking this revelation, forcing it, if you will, onto his father, if you're to believe Winston Blackmore's um, testimony that Uncle Rulon doesn't even remember having this vision. Now, of course, Uncle Rulon would prophesy earlier that he would live forever, but Warren is really running with this, and they're starting to marry more and more women. Um Warren would preach constantly that Uncle Rulon would be renewed. This is the word that he starts using. He would be renewed for the next 320 years. And he would be the last prophet. This starts to become a loyalty test for the members. They have to believe this. And if they don't, that means that they're wicked. If you doubted this, you could be called into Warren's office and your membership could be questioned and you could lose everything, including your family and your home. At this point, women and children are becoming to be seen as a property of men. While they have always in some sort of way been, you know, seen as that, Warren really solidifies the idea that women 
are property of the UEP. They're property of the church. And Warren gets to decide what to do with them. You know, just like a bishop would do in, in the storehouse in 1865, where he would tell you how much grain you were allotted or something like that. This is what Warren intends to do with wives and children. Warren becomes so obsessed with with Uncle Rulon's renewal, that he writes a song called He Shall Be Renewed. And the chorus said, quote, For he shall run and leap on Zion's streets of gold. His body will then be renewed, restored as in his youth. His handmaiden shall be increased, and great will be his seed. The Lord has worked a miracle. Our prophet has been healed, end quote. It's said that during uh, Rulon's failing health, his wives would spend hours praying for his renewal. And some even would sew baby clothes in anticipation for the day that Rulon would be renewed and they would have babies with him again. But as these things tend to do, in 2002, Uncle Rulon would die. This leaves Warren Jeffs with a dilemma. Who is going to be the next leader? He's not supposed to die, right? Interesting, at his funeral, there's a printed program that shows Rulon presiding over his own funeral service. He's there presiding at his own funeral service. Warren would explain that Uncle Rulon was in the next room, and he could see everything that was unfolding in the world of the spirits. They sang, He Has Been Renewed, the song that Warren Jeffs had written, and um, Warren was a speaker. And interestingly enough, he was listed on the program as Elder Warren S. Jeffs for President Rulon T. Jeffs. Now, this is interesting wording, and it's really important because Warren is going for something here. He's thought this through. The next day after the funeral, Warren would go to Rulon widows and he would say listen I want you to live as if father is alive in the next room go about your days do what you're doing and you know live as if uncle Rulon is still here he also marries many of these widows some who used to be some of his mothers Soon after, we see something happening that we see sort of in the uh, remnants of the LDS, or sorry, the Mormon secession crisis when Brigham Young uh, takes over leadership from um, after Joseph Smith is martyred. We see something similar. So at a meeting with about 2,000 members, Fred Jessup gets up and says that he's not an apostle and doesn't have right to take over the church leadership. Now, it's interesting because it's said that Fred Jessup was to be ordained as a bishop, and there was rumors that Uncle Rulon slipped and gave him all of the keys. So a lot of people thought that Fred Jessup was going to be the next leader. Of course, he gets up at this meeting and says, No, 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 I do not have the keys. I am just the bishop. He said, quote, I look, Warren, I look to Warren for guidance in these certain uncertain times. And Warren would say, Uncle Fred is the better man. People were really confused. They didn't know what this meant. Did this mean that uh, Fred Fred Jessup was the leader or was Warren Jeffs the next leader? And if so, who had been appointed and why did Uncle Rulon die? What was going on? During the October 2002 uh, general meeting, Warren invited 
up speakers who had stated that Warren should be their next leader. One was Isaac Jeffs, who happened to be Warren's brother. He told people that Rulon had confidence in Warren and wanted him to be the successor. This was in October. They're sort of preparing the way. Meanwhile, Warren is using this language that he was using when his father was still alive in that Warren is just acting on behalf of his father. He's still doing this. This is how he gains leadership. So as his father has a stroke and is dying, Warren is acting on behalf of him. And now that he's dead, Warren is still continuing to act on behalf of his father's leadership to carry out his wishes. It's now December of 2002. And Warren decides to make his case to the general membership. Now, it's said that he invites all these, you know, leaders to come to this general meeting. But what happens, what is rumored is that all of the people that are in favor of Warren stand outside the doors and prevent anyone that's a critic of Warren from even entering the meeting. Warren, who is really awkward and quiet and shy, slowly approaches the podium and humbly says, quote, Unbeknownst to me, Father has prepared witnesses for this time. End quote. So he goes and sits back down, and these witnesses start coming up to the stand. One of the witnesses was uh, one of Uncle Rulon's widows, Mary, and the other was Naomi. And they speak to the crowd, and they claim that they helped Rulon in his last days. And as he was dying, they say that Uncle Rulon wanted Warren Jeffs to be the next leader. Now, Naomi is an important name to remember. She's going to come up later because she is with Warren in his last days before he is captured by law enforcement. But at this point, Naomi has already been resealed to Warren Jeffs. So she is a widow of Rulon Jeffs, gets sealed to Warren Jeffs, and now she becomes this witness. She gets on the stand. She sort of intimates that there's this form of reincarnation slash spiritual possession that has happened, that the spirit of Rulon has come back to earth in the form of Warren Jeffs. So this is the renewal. Warren Jeffs is Rulon Jeffs renewed. And this is something that a lot of people wanted to hear. They were confused. They had really been hammered in with this idea of the renewal, and they wanted to believe that it wasn't another failed prophecy, and here it was. Now all these pieces are coming together in their mind, why Warren is talking the way he is and why he is acting in the name of his father, because he was becoming his father. He's being sort of reincarnated to be his father. Naomi is said to have said, quote, he, meaning Rulon, told me many times before and after a stroke that I would be called as a witness, and he told me many other things that are too sacred to repeat. Warren walked out into the hall, and I looked upon him, and I saw Father's holy light shine on him. I felt the same feeling on Warren that I had felt on Father. I bear witness that Warren Jeffs is the prophet, end quote. Now, um, it's interesting to note, this is pointed out in the F. LDS blog spot that I talked about that that something similar has happened. So in in um, when Rulon Allred passes away from the AUB, he has a similar sort of dispute um, 
who is going to be the next leader. This also happens in other groups like the LeBaron and Kingston groups when their leaders are prophesied to never die, but then they do die and they have to figure out who the next leader is going to be. In Rulon Allred's case, some of his wives come and say, yep, I know who the next leader is going to be. I was a witness there. I helped him in his death, and now I know who the leader is going to be. And the FLDS made a culture out of sort of shaming that, saying, of course, this is why Rulon Allred of the AUB is not a legitimate leader, because women cannot stand witness to this kind of authority. They cannot be witnesses to something so important. And yet in this own case, Warren starts to change this, and he says, well, in this case, they were, these, these wives were here. Some of his most trusted wives were here and they witnessed him and they, you know, have said that I'm the prophet. So Warren sort of slips into this leadership role. Now he really goes with this renewal thing. In 2004, he is said to have said, quote, father is here. This is his anniversary today, September 8th. And yet he hasn't been gone. The Lord has corrected me if I started to miss him because he is right here. The previous prophet becomes a connection with the heavens. He is always close by or his influences. Father directs the angels to go check in on this family member and the priesthood person all in oneness with the priesthood over him, end quote. Now, while he is teaching and sort of perpetuating this idea that he is his father reincarnated, that his father has been renewed through him, Warren starts to do something that is kind of ingenious in a way. When he is talking about himself separately as Warren Jeffs and his father's Rulon Jeffs, he talks about Rulon Jeffs and sort of elevates him to a godlike status. At times, he will even pray to Rulon. Um, he would start his prayers with, thank the Lord and Father. So it's this play on Heavenly Father, but now it's his father. So it's sort of confusing the language, muddying the language. And then he would say stuff like, I'm here to do the will of Heavenly Father through my Father. And when he would give commands to people, he would say, The Lord and the Father want all of you to do such and such. And during his heavenly sessions that we're going to talk about in the next episode, which are really hard to take, he even says he feels the presence of the Father. And he means his Father, Rulon. So he does this, and he starts to blur these lines between Rulon being a prophet and Rulon being God. He elevates Rulon to the status of the Godhead. Now, it's as if Rulon is up in heaven with Heavenly Father, with God, telling the people what to do. But you see where he's going with this when Warren Jeffs is also channeling the spirit of Rulon Jeffs, renewing Rulon Jeffs. Then that means that Warren Jeffs is not only the prophet, but he is also a God. This is important. This You see this really take shape. Warren even has some of his wives sealed to him, quote, in behalf of the father. It's a really weird way to do this. Warren would marry these women and sometimes girls, but they would be sealed to Rulon. So he does this double life thing. So maybe they might have never been married to Rulon in life, but they would be married to him to Rulon in heaven through him. So he would be the proxy. And this is kind of like a, a offshoot of the sealing doctrine that Joseph Smith would do, but he really goes with this and sort of solidifies his idea of him being Rulon. Warren also taught that Rulon was still having offspring through his widows. 
In one case, Rulon even tells one of the widows that she needs to go visit father again, and he means him, and he, he means him, Warren. He says, um, she needed to be close to see me, to see father again. She she accused me of taking her closeness to father, saying how she loved him and wanted to die now and go to him. He told her that she would never see him if she went in the present condition, if she wasn't prepared. And so he kind of shames this widow into grieving her and saying, I am Rulon now. You need to be with me and be close with me. Now, we're going to stop here with this episode. The second part of this episode will tell you about the beliefs of the FLDS, tell you about some of their doctrines, tell you more about Warren's rule. But I wanted to get you up until where Warren was taking over control. So again, as a brief outline, starts with Broadbent, moves to the Council of Friends. They see some schisms that end up in Centennial, well, first the Kingston group, and then Centennial Park. And then uh, you see Leroy Johnson taking over. From there, it's Uncle Rulon. And then Rulon is usurped by his son, Warren Jeffs. So Jeffs is now in control at this point in our episode. And hopefully we will get into some of the beliefs and practices coming up in the in the second part of this episode. So thanks for listening to the first part of the episode and uh, tune in to the second part. 